Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Welcome, I'm Mike Smith. Uh, was a pastor here for a long time. Was actually here when Tony Giles was our interim pastor. Tony was here right before David Cassidy came. Uh, and then now the Cassidy here, Randy is here. Randy's taking uh, the rest of this month off, as he mentions, and taking advantage of the wealth of preachers that we have and pastors in this area. So Tony, when he left here, uh, went to Cornerstone, and he's still there. But we welcome him back to the pulpit. So come, we're looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, it's a, it is a trite saying to, to say that this is a treat. Uh, that is an understatement. Uh, it's both that and an honor and a joy uh, to be with you today. Delighted to uh, join you in the worship of the living God. We're going to take a look at a passage of scripture. My task is to unpack that uh, for you and help us, uh, help you and myself as well, to see the beauty and the grandeur that is Jesus Christ. That's who has us here. That's why we're here. That's where our hearts engage with his word to us. Uh, he meets us here as we look to him. So I want to ask you, if you would, turn your attention. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at a parable. A parable, by the way, it dawned on me recently that a par- every parable is a standalone sermon. <laughs> uh, just like this one today. This is not a part of a series, but every time Jesus told a parable... It was a standalone sermon. So if I do my part, if the Spirit does what the Spirit does, then this standalone sermon will serve His purposes for His glory and our good. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention And went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, as we have heard your word, now fill us with your spirit. Would you soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence? Would you sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth? Would you shape our wills that we may desire your ways through Jesus Christ our Lord? Amen. This uh, may sound like a similar story. If you've been around the Gospels much, uh, Jesus did tell another parable that sounded a bit like this one. Uh, It's in Luke 14. You might look at that later just to pick up the the nuance and differences. The one that he tells here, he's, he's gathered himself around chief priests and the Pharisees. That was not unusual. But at this point in Jesus' three-year public ministry, he's gathered with religious leaders who've had their eye on him, who've had a design for him, and have gone from being curious to skeptical to furious. That's his audience. These scribes and Pharisees at this point in the story were plotting to arrest and kill him. So we might expect this version of the parable. Jesus would often tell a parable twice, a story twice. We might expect this version to be a bit hotter, more filled with severity and even death. Because the previous story was told over something like coffee and dessert at a dinner party. The situation is different, and what we might expect is just what we find. The emphasis in this case is not on the excuses given, although there are a couple, but on the repeated refusal of the invitation. That's what Jesus is driving home with this standalone sermon. The constant, repeated refusal of the gracious invitation. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, again in parables. There are at least 30 parables in the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't find parables in John. He's writing for different purposes. But in the synoptics, over 30, most all of them have on the very surface of the parable king and kingdom, like this one. But you could probably make the case that every parable is about the king and the kingdom because they come from the lips of the king. So it's the king who is addressing, in this case, his mutinous subjects. More on that in a moment. Robert Capon was an Episcopal priest in New York who died a decade ago now. He wrote about parables this. These are stories we are so fond of, entertaining, agreeable, simple, and clear. But some are not stories. Many are not agreeable. Most are complex, and a good percentage of them produce more confusion than understanding. (laughs) Jesus said about his own parables, because the secrets of the kingdom have have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears... For they hear. 
I don't know enough about literature to know what Emily Dickinson had in mind when she wrote her famous poem, Tell All the Truth, But Tell It Slant. And one line from that poem is, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Before we go any further, would you pray that the truth would dazzle you this day? Truth and song and worship and sacrament and word, that the truth would dazzle you. That's what Jesus has in mind when he tells a parable and he tells the truth slant, we might say. Uh, this parable falls uh, very simply into four scenes. There's four scenes. I'm going to take, for the time that we have, walk through these four scenes and ask you to go with me. The first one in those first opening verses is we could call the rejection of an invitation because that's what happens. It's a little bit like a save the date announcement that you have received about an upcoming event, perhaps a wedding or a grand event that belongs on your calendar. It's the save the date announcement had gone out and the king now says the date has come. Uh, the, the calves have been slaughtered. The dinner is set. And now that date that has been on your calendar has arrived. Come, come to the wedding feast. He sent the couriers out to reissue that invitation to say the date has come, the greatest person, the king's son, the greatest event that these citizens of the town would have, would have occasioned, and an invitation that was refused three times. The first re refusal we could call, we could drop in a bucket called apathy. The, the invitation has gone out, and we read that, that they paid no attention. One went to his farm, and another to his business. As if to say, yeah, I got the invitation. But there are other things that are more pressing, or more important. Uh, your plans have no place for me. It's a preoccupation of sorts. It, it's, it's what Jesus talked about in the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, depending on how you want to read that, about thorns and thistles, the cares of the world that choke out the things of the world to come, the world that has come into this world. Do you know anything about those? The cares of this world, the, the thorns and thistles that can and, and do choke out the gracious invitation of the king. They paid no attention. Apathy means without feeling or lack of interest or concern. They paid no attention. That's, that's one bucket. And apparently there were only two of those who listened in that bucket. Perhaps there were more, but the story only talks about one who went to his farm and one who went to his business, and the rest fall into another bucket. We could say this is the larger of the two buckets, at least in this case. In my world, in our world, in Middle Tennessee, in this culture, apathy runs rampant. That may be the larger bucket. But in this case, with chief priests and, and, and scribes, who were plotting to kill, the larger bucket 
is the rest of those who listened, who reacted violently, who seized the couriers and killed them. It was rebellion. It was hostility against the king. And as this story is told, these chief priests and scribes and Pharisees were to have heard their own plans being exposed. Right? You, you can't miss that. The rest seized the son's king and killed him, the couriers, because they wouldn't go to the wedding of the son's king. Apathy and anger. We see both of those in our modern world. Apathy and anger, and underneath both of those is a kind of self-righteous pride that my way is better or your way is wrong. Kind of a self-righteous pride that lurks at the heart of every culture and at the heart of every human life. Lewis Smedes was a professor at Fuller Seminary. <clears throat> he was a member of the uh, Christian Reformed Church and, and uh, during his life of service wrote long and well about many topics, ethics being one. But he writes about pride this way. Pride is the spiritual sense. Pride in the spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for oneself turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his world and wishing instead to be creator, independent, reliant upon one's own resources. Do you recognize that? Maybe in yourself, maybe in others. The tendency to turn down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature rather than Creator, independent, reliant upon one's own resources. That's the great illusion, we might call it the delusional fantasy, that we can make it as master of our own lives. Have you tried that? It leaves us empty. It leaves us restless at the center. And Jesus sends a gracious invitation to join him in his joy. And we're going to come back to that. So the first scene of this parable is the rejection invitation. And now we find the indignation of the king. The king responded. Did you catch it? The king was angry. I don't know how you would respond to that kind of rejected invitation. He's looking at the wedding feast prepared He's been turned down, and the king is angry. And we have to think for a moment and recognize that this is the king to begin with, right? These were his, as I referred to earlier, his mutinous subjects. A mutiny. That's open rebellion against proper authority. That's what a mutiny is. From another parable, Jesus would use these words... We do not want this man to reign over us. And that's the attitude that he's received from his invited guests. We do not want this man to shape our lives, to determine our calendar, to order our lives, to reign. Some of you, no doubt, uh, were watching a screen on Saturday, May 6th. 
And I, and I suggest that because so many people find the English monarchy so fascinating. That was the day at Westminster Abbey where King Charles was crowned. Some of you watched that with intense interest and curiosity. It doesn't happen very often, so I understand why you may have tuned in. But if you were to, if you were to watch that unfold, and if you saw uh, any replay of it later, the first part of that coronation is called the recognition. That's the name of it. The king is presented in Westminster Abbey, and, and during this recognition, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the one who introduces and recognizes and invites the, the gathered congregation to recognize the king. And he turns in four directions, to the north, to the east, to the south, and to the west. And every time he turns, so does the king facing the gathered congregation. And as he turns, the archbishop pronounces, declares these words. I here present unto you King Charles, your undoubted king. Your undoubted king. He's not up for a vote. Your undoubted king. Friends, do you understand that the king who issues the invitation is your undoubted king? He's not up for election. He's your undoubted king. We have a God who's patient, and aren't we glad? We don't see much patience in this parable. We run the risk. There's a tendency on our part to, to take one feature, one aspect of the character of God, to stress that aspect of God's character at the expense of another. And we risk, up, we risk ending up with a distortion of the true God. The God who is patient is the God who is the king. And here we see his response. And it's called anger. You see, the patience of our God is to an end. It is to a purpose. The patience of God has purpose in mind. And his purpose is repentance gratitude and joyful response. That's what Ezekiel has in mind when he writes in chapter 33, say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Or Peter, in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the Apostle Paul, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is patience unto repentance, and God's anger works to disarm the power of our sin. It does that. 
And that's what Jesus has in mind as he tells the story about a king who was angry and goes beyond anger and he burned their city. That's an extreme punishment reserved for serious treason and revolt against the king. It could be said rightly that the kingdom must be preserved from those who are trying to destroy it and undermine it. And the only safety is in submitting to the gracious, good monarchy of Jesus. There was the rejection of the invitation. There was the indignation of the king. And finally, a redirection of the invitation uh, to a different company of people. You notice that, right? In verses 8 through 10, you could look at. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not. Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can. And the servants went out to the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. Stop right there. We're supposed to stop right there. Those invited to the wedding feast, both bad and good. He didn't say good and bad. He said bad and good. It's the bad and the good. And in Luke's version, we read that it's the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. Those are the ones who are invited who fill the empty seats at the wedding feast. Now, think about that for just a moment. You're a fly on the wall or a courier watching these these guests come in and take their seat. And you're wondering, what is going on? The poor, the blind, the lame, the tax collectors, the, the bad, as well as the good, are invited to the wedding feast. Imagine you're among them, looking around and seeing the likes of you gathered here in this place. You know, it was the well-heeled of Palestine in general who tended to reject him. It was the poor, the marginalized of society who welcomed him. And that's who Jesus invites here. All people from all walks of life receiving the invitation who were not worthy, but who were welcomed. Plan B was plan A all along. Do you know that? Plan B was plan A all along. The day of salvation was described in the Old Testament as a feast of rich foods for all people. Not the well-heeled. Not the religious elite. Not the super spiritual disciples. But for all people, that's the day of salvation. It's a wedding feast. It's a picture that we see unfold throughout the Old and New Testament of a messianic banquet. We read in Isaiah 25 about that banquet pictured here. It's a feast for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Aren't you glad? Of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Well and they sang a new song, Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth, both bad and good, gathered together, not worthy, but welcomed. The invitation was redirected 
And that's not the end of the story. In fact, one of the features, one of the main features of this story unique to this one is the exclusion of an intruder. In this culture, the host would not have gathered with his guests, but he makes an entrance after the feast is underway, and that's what happens here. After the food is served and people are on their second helping, maybe dessert, the king, the host, enters the banquet hall to greet his guests. And that's what happens here when he recognizes someone seated at table without the wedding garment required. Now what's beneath the surface of this story, it's not really on the surface, but it's a part of that culture that helps us understand it. That when those people were called from the streets, they didn't go home to change for the feast. They came to the banquet and were provided clothing and garments for the occasion. So as they come into the quarters, they're first dressed appropriately, and then they make their entrance and take their seat. But here's one who bypasses that provision, who ignores what we could call a gracious provision. And he comes in on his own terms. That's the issue, that he's come into the banquet on his own terms. Rather than, the, rather than the guest's requirement, the, the host's requirements. The wedding garment provided is just a little glimpse of a grand and beautiful story that would stagger us. Because when we are welcomed into the community of God's people, we come not on our own terms, we come not in our own merit, we, we come not with our best foot forward, We come, friends, clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. It is his righteousness that clothes you, that equips you, that qualifies you to be welcomed into the presence of the living God. That's the gracious provision. And it ends in a dire warning. Very dire. It's described here as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're to cast this intruder out by not wearing garments provided this guest has highly insulted the host. He was unwilling to come on the king's terms. And this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Scripture is is a common description of eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is a reality that's embedded into this standalone sermon that Jesus tells not just to Jewish officials, but to us. Jesus is not always this harsh. Consider the parable of the prodigal son. That's the rest of the story. But, But here, judgment falls like a thunderclap on the refusal of grace. There are fatal consequences to refusing the grace that is extended to you in Christ. One writer said, our claim is that Scripture is true, not that it is sanitized for our own ears. 
But even when he speaks in judgment, Jesus is careful to make grace sovereign over all. There's another concept in this standalone sermon that we won't have time to fully deal with, and that is this closing statement, declaration that many are called, few are chosen. We may be hesitant at times to wade into the matter of election, but Jesus was not hesitant to bring it up. Our confession of faith upon which this church and the denomination stand describes the doctrine of this high mystery of calling and election and predestination and calls it a high mystery to be handled with special prudence and care. But here it is intended as a comforting notion for you who have heard his call, who've been invited to the wedding feast to take a place not only at the table this day, but at a wedding feast to come, a messianic banquet that would be fulfilled. The parable here is intended to tell us something about God. He's a king who throws party that any other king, parties that any other king would be ashamed of. Consider the guest list. No other king would do that. Representing a God who refuses to act like we think he should. That's the God to whom we belong. A God who, who throws parties like any other king would be ashamed of. A God who refuses to act like we think he should. When he chose to send his son, the king's son, the one portrayed in this parable, the son of the king, the one who came, and the one who was himself excluded. You know, there's a reason that you, can, you have hope, that we have hope in this, that we're not that one who is banished, who's thrown out, because Jesus was for you. Jesus was excluded. It was outside the city that he was killed. And we read in, by Peter, who was there witnessing, he said that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, to be welcomed to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what we find in Revelation. Hear these words. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the kind of linen you don't find in your closet. The kind of linen that is granted to you, provided for you by the host of the feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that we, staggered again by His gracious invitation. Stirred by his stern warning. But also, as we have sung this morning, with cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee. 
It's not anything other than the beauty of Christ, the finished work of Christ that staggers us, that melts apathy, that dispels anger and creates in us a joyful eagerness because we belong to one who gave himself that you would have a seat and a place and a home that does not end with the Lamb of God who gave him his life that you would have life eternal forever it's yours Father would you take these truths the truths that Jesus told slant to a group of listeners and as you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to embrace the beauty and the wonder of, of, our, of the gospel we're grateful Father that the place that you have set apart for us is an assigned seat our name is on it our name is written there with yours the one who provides it the one who is our host the one who is our undoubted king and our gracious and good redeemer Christ our Lord it's in his name that we